Chapter Eight of Eyes Like the Sea by Mor Yokoi, translated by R. Nisbet Bain. The Slippervox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. After the March days, I quitted the Petefis and went into another lodging. I had got on so well that I could maintain a bachelor's establishment consisting of two rooms, which I furnished myself. Properly speaking, it only became a bachelor's establishment when I entered for before I took it it was occupied by a little old woman who kept a registry office for providing respectable families with servants. Everyone knew Mamie, as she was called. I was very well satisfied with my lodging, which quite answered all my requirements. It had this one drawback, however, that a whole mob of cooks, parlour-maids, and nursery-maids were constantly opening my door under the persuasion that I could provide them with places, and they disturbed my work terribly." Besides, this constant flow of petticoats toward my door was sufficient of itself to bring a young man into disrepute. From the apartments at the opposite end of the corridor it was possible to catch a glimpse of my door, and it was just in these very apartments that Rosa Laboflavi lived. I was afraid that some one might think ill of me. It was no longer the Wertschmerz, but a Privetschmerz, that afflicted me. Again I had applied myself to portrait-painting. A tall, slender girl, in a white atlas dress, with large black eyes and coal-black ringlets a la anglais, rolling down to her shoulders, was standing on my easel. I was just giving it the finishing touch. I had no need for the original to be my model. I have the portrait to this day. All at once there came a knocking at my door. Come in. The door opened, and in came a stylish young peasant girl. I thought as much. Here we have another nursery-maid in search of a place. No, no, go away. The registry office lady does not live here, I said viciously, for I was busy with my portrait. And perceiving that the intruder did not retire even now, I bawled out, not over gently, In heaven's name, be off, my dear. At this the peasant girl began to laugh. Had I not heard that laughing voice somewhere before? I turned round and looked at her, and the more I looked, the more astonished I felt. It was Bessie. She wore a bright red gown trimmed with yellowish-green flowers, over that a dark blue, double-bordered damask apron, and a black silk bodice with puff sleeves. Above the bodice was a bib with beautifully embroidered palm-flowers. On her head sat a coxcomb-like halb, frilled with starched thread lace. On her arm she carried a covered basket by the handle. Her face was ruddy and bronzed from exposure to the sun, and a sort of waggish little imp was nestling provocatively in her smiling features. I couldn't believe my own eyes. "'What, don't you know me?' she cried with a merry laugh. "'I'm Bessie.' I saw that, but for the life of me I could not conceive what her object was in coming masquerading like this through the streets of Buddha in broad daylight, and to hit upon my lodgings of all places in the world.' "'Madame de Bogotay? I stammered in my confusion. "'Oh, I am no longer Madame Bogotay, but Madame Peter Duraza.' "'What on earth do you mean? Mrs. Duraza, the wife of a herdsman?' My amazement was so genuine that Bessie clapped her hands together with glee. "'Then you actually don't know about it. They haven't written to you from home?' "'It is a long time since I received a letter from home.' But this was a scandal, which set seven counties in an uproar. There has been nothing like it since the French Revolution. And you call yourself the editor of a newspaper? My paper does not meddle with purely family matters. 
Bessie's face was flushed, and she began smoothing it with the palms of both hands. She thought, perhaps, that she would brush the tell-tale blush away. "'I have heated myself a little on that steep staircase of yours,' she said. She blamed the staircase for that flaming face of hers. Then it occurred to me that it would only be polite to ask my fair visitor to take a seat. I offered her the sofa. "'Oh, dear, no, that's only for ladies. This will do quite well enough for me.' And with that she sat down on my trunk, and put down her basket beside it. "'I really am quite tired. I have travelled by the corn-boat as far as Vass, and thence have walked all the way to Pest. "'But you could have gone by steamer?' "'But my master could not give me steamboat fare. We are poor people. Look, this is my whole provision for the journey.' And with that she lifted the lid of the basket, and showed me what was inside of it a piece of black bread, and something wrapped up in greasy paper, a piece of cheese, possibly, and a garlic-seasoned sausage. I must keep this for my return journey. The cynicism of the proceeding revolted me. But now, if you please, I should very much like to know what's the meaning of it all. Is it a practical joke you are playing upon me? Oh, no, certainly not. Pray don't suppose that I have dressed up on your account. I am now a real peasant woman, and such I mean to remain." It is a serious thing for me, I can tell you, and I've come to you, not that you may write about it in your paper, but that you may give me advice. I give you advice? Certainly. Whom else should I ask? The whole world condemns and tramples upon me, and yet I have offended nobody, not even in thought. You are the only one I have injured, bitterly injured, so it is from you that I must seek protection. Woman's Logic with a Vengeance I stood up in front of her, leaning on the edge of the table. I was contriving all the time to prevent her from seeing the portrait I was painting. "'I'll begin from the very beginning,' continued the lady, lowering her long eyelashes. "'I was married, so much you know. We gave a splendid banquet. The whole town, half the county, was there. I fancy they described it in the newspapers. And why shouldn't they, when the richest, best-known, and most handsome girl in the town was married to the ideal cavalier?' The lady brought a dowry of one hundred thousand florins, and the gentleman conveyed his bride to his ancestral castle in a carriage drawn by four fiery horses. The universal envy was more piquant grace to the meal than the benediction of the priest. The gentleman envied the bridegroom, and the ladies envied the bride, and every one was forced to say, a couple made for each other. Alas, the only joy which remained in my heart when I came out of church and looked among the crowd was the thought, ah! You all envy me now, I know. We went straight from church to my husband's castle, continued Bessie. Thirty carriages escorted us. I counted them. A splendid banquet followed. That day I changed my dress four times. The fifth time I put on a lace negligee, and the bridesmaids led me to the bridal chamber. This room was a veritable masterpiece of upholstery. A Vienna furnisher had decorated it most elaborately. I couldn't sleep all night. The voice of the bass viol and the clarinet resounded in my ears from the banqueting-room, and the noise and uproar of the guests also. I did not see my husband till morning. Then the guests began to disperse. Only now and then did a cracked and piping voice mingle with the frantic music of the gypsies. Then it was that my husband appeared before me, and a pitiable object he looked. He called me his darling little sister, and asked me if I could tell him where he lived. Then he undressed himself on the sofa, and talked such nonsense that at last I couldn't help laughing. Well, I said to myself, I suppose this is always the way when they take leave of their bachelordom. Then sleep overcame me, and I dreamed the silliest stuff. 
You were continually in my dreams. But why mention such things now? With that she readjusted her kerchief, which was tied around her headdress, and proceeded. It was afternoon when I awoke. I must have wept a great deal in my dreams, for the pillow on which my head lay was quite wet. My husband was no longer reposing on the sofa, but sprawling on the floor like a stuffed frog. It cost me a great deal of trouble to shake him into life again. It was a still greater effort to make him understand in what part of the world he was, and in what relations we stood to each other here below. After that he insisted upon my crawling with him under the sofa, and when I wouldn't hear of it, he began to cry like a child, and demanded a pistol from me that he might blow his brains out. Then I brought a washing-basin, and washed his face for him, and ducked it once or twice in cold water. He roared like a baby who was being tubbed, but finally recovered his spirits, and allowed himself to be raised from the ground. Then he drank out of the water-jug, and his eyes opened, but they were as tiny as a mole's, and I now perceived for the first time that they were a little crooked. During this narration Bessy laughed, and laughed again. What a sight the fellow did look! His hair all rumpled, his moustache all askew, his clothes soiled and tousled. He had to be dressed all over again. I began to scold him a little. A pretty condition of things, I must say. To which he replied that I ought to have seen his comrades, Nushi, Lenazi, and Blakus, and how they had been settled. They had all fallen under the table, and he had remained the victor. And he yawned so much as he told me this, that I had to beg him not to swallow me. At last I got him to sit down on a chair while I did his hair for him, and he meanwhile howled and swore continually that every single hair pained him as much as if devils were tweaking him with iron pincers. Again the lady stopped to laugh. "'That's quite a novel state of things to you, eh? A person who becomes the bride of an out-and-out -out dandy must expect to see something extraordinary. But perhaps there was nothing extraordinary in it after all. And now the banquet was resumed, commencing with the pick-me-up. I presided at the table with a turban on my head. All our guests were still drunk. I had to listen to very peculiar anecdotes. At such times the best man is he who can pay the new bride the compliment which will make her blush the most. The lady guests had all departed in the morning, and had come to bid me good-bye, one by one. They all wept over me. It is the usual thing. I was the only lady left, and glad was I when I managed to get away from the gentlemen. I think that they had been awaiting my withdrawal. They could then continue in their interrupted pastime. Again I could not sleep. My head was throbbing. For the first time in my life I recognized the existence of the headache, that frightful curse of feminine nerves which I had hitherto always put down to affectation or imagination. How good it would have been for me if someone had laid a cool, refreshing hand on my temples! Perhaps a single word of comfort would have relieved my pangs. I waited for it in vain. I sent a message. He never came to me. Suddenly, while an oppressive dream was benumbing my pain, a hellish uproar awoke me. I fancied the pandemonium had been let loose. It was only my husband, but he had brought with him the whole of his drunken crew. I saw before me a whole legion of men, with guffawing, sardonic, lascivious, distorted faces, and amongst them my husband, with a grin of a satyr on his idiotic face. I rose in terror from my bed, cast my counterpane around me, fled into my waiting-maid's room, and barricaded myself behind the door. There he thumped and thundered for some time. I threatened to throw myself out the window if he broke in by force. Thereupon some of his comrades, in whom a little human feeling still remained, contrived to drag him away, 
though not without difficulty. Then followed a sulky squabble on both sides. I wouldn't leave my room for four and twenty hours, and he wouldn't come to me. The noise that he made overhead was sufficient evidence to me that he hadn't committed suicide in the meantime. The third day was passed by the bridal guests in a more profitable occupation. They played at cards. The table vigorously punched by their fists, proclaiming their handiwork aloud. It was like blacksmith's apprentices pounding iron on the anvil with sledgehammers. Only in the morning did my lord and master turn up while I was still only half-dressed. He was sober then, and, what is more, ill-tempered. His loss at cards was mirrored in his face like a guilty conscience. He frankly told me all about it. He had been peppered finely, and his comrades were vile curs. Such was my wedding. Bessie covered her face with both her hands. Was she laughing? Was she weeping? I cannot say. All at once she asked me, Did you ever play at cards? Yes, but only for copper coins. It's all one. You ought not to waste your time with it. Well, really, I only spend that time on it which I do not know how to employ otherwise. The time when I am tired of work, and want a rest from thinking. Cards are very good things at such times. Then what a pity girls also do not learn the science of card-playing at school, just as they learn to find out towns on maps, or gather the properties of exotic plants and animals from zoological albums. Then at least a newly married bride would understand why it is necessary to subtract so much from her heritage, to sacrifice it to such mythological deities as Skiz and Paget. Meanwhile, I didn't interrupt her, but remained standing and looking at her with my hands resting on the table. This seemed to put her out. Why don't you smoke a cigar? Don't mind me. I would only remind you that you used always to make fun of me because I didn't smoke. True, smoking becomes a man. A cigar or a pipe makes his face so cosy-looking. Just look at any man who hasn't a pipe stuck in his mouth, and tell me if he doesn't look like a judge pronouncing judgment, or a priest shriving a penitent. Believe me, that's one of the reasons why I was faithless to you, that you didn't smoke. Well, at any rate, I have got my reward for it. Now, Muki used to suck Havanas all day. Yes, nothing but Havanas. But Duracell smokes the coarsest tobacco, and even chews pigtail. I burst out laughing. I couldn't help it. In what ways are a woman's graces gained? No, I wouldn't chew pigtail if the favor of the goddess Melphomane herself depended upon it. I will not weary you out with our diversions at Paris. There, I perceived, it is the common practice for husband and wife to take their pleasures apart. My husband did no more than what other husbands do. It is not good form to ask a husband who returns home at dawn where he has been. Besides, Muki, with perfect candor, informed me all about these places of public entertainment, and the joys of les petites soupers. Once he took me with him to these delights. I didn't ask to go again. I was very glad when the season was over and we returned to our village. And after all the bustling diversions, flirtations, visitings, and boredom, I could once more be alone and fill my straw hat with forget-me-nots on the bank of the river, as of old on the island. You remember my visit to your rustic hut, don't you? You remember the golden thrushes who used to speak to you? To you they said, Silly boy, silly boy. To me they cried, What's the good, what's the good? On returning to his estates my husband became quite another man. You would have said that he was a changeling. The dainty dandy became an enthusiastic agriculturalist. He was up early, on horseback all day, went from one putzda to another, 
and brought home ears of barley in his hat. The only thing he talked about at home were sheep shearing and the diseases of horned cattle. He had a stud and a neat herd, and of the latter he appeared to be particularly proud. Sometimes he drove me all over his demence in a light gig. A fine demence it was. You might drive about it the whole day and not see the whole of it. He showed me his herds. He told me that herds like them were not to be had in the whole kingdom. I didn't understand it. All that I could see was that the oxen had very large horns. But the form of the herdsman really did surprise me. He was a veritable ancient hero sort of man, such as we imagine the primeval Magars to be, who wandered hither out of Asia. His bronzed face beamed with health, his thick black hair whipped his shoulders with greasy curls, and add to that his sun-defying glance, his stately bearing, his long mantle embroidered with tulips and cast lightly across his shoulder. His white linen garment fluttered in the breeze, and when he raised his arm to take off his cap, the loose fluttering short sleeves fell right back and revealed an arm like the arm of a figure of an athlete cast in bronze. "'Why, Pater,' said I, "'is it you that your master is wont to wrestle?' The Hercules, thus addressed, timidly cast down his eyes and said, "'Yes.' "'But how on earth is your master ever able to throw you?' At this question, Pater Durasa shifted his mantle from one shoulder to the other, and twisting his moustache, replied, "'As often as His Excellency throws me, I get five florins.' So that was the secret of Muki's acrobatic triumphs. After that the herdsman conducted us to the great summer farm, which was a good distance from the hut where the calves are put to rest at midday. There a savoury luncheon prepared by the wife of the herdsman awaited us, she was a buxom, smart young woman, with roguish eyes and radiating eyebrows, all life and freshness, a true blossom of the putzta. I caught myself looking repeatedly in the mirror and making comparisons between her face and my own. After luncheon we went all round the farm, and the herdsman's wife guided us from stable to stable. A thorn got into my foot through my slipper. The herdsman's wife bobbed down and drew the thorn out. "'You don't feel the thorn now, do you?' she asked, flashing a look upon me. "'I do not feel it in my foot,' I replied. Bessie paused for a moment, and smoothed her brows with both hands, as if to refresh her memory. I took another sort of thorn away with me. I began to be suspicious of the grand economical zeal of my husband. Such assiduity was not natural. Early one morning he again took horse, called to his greyhounds, and told me not to wait for him to dinner. He would not be home till evening. A certain instinct would not let me rest. I went out into the garden, right to the boundary fence, and into the stubble beyond. And then I went on foot to the putzta, through the turnip fields and the Indian corn. Nobody saw me. The vesper bell was ringing in the village when I entered the courtyard of the herdsman. In the stubble I saw the two dogs hunting a hare on their own account. Truly, a cockney sportsman who allows his dog to win their own meat like that. I whistled to them. They recognized me and came leaping around me. Where's your master? The dogs understood me. They began yelping and barking, and darted on before me helter-skelter, with their heads between their legs, as if to give me to understand that they would lead me to the spot if I followed them. They made straight for the hut. No doubt they fancied they were doing something very knowing. When I marched in at the door, the little servant exclaimed, "'Good gracious!' and let fall the wooden trencher in which she was kneading some dough with a large pot-ladle. And when I advanced toward the dwelling-room door, she stood in my way and said, "'Please don't go in now.' 
I boxed her ears for her, first on the right side and then on the left, pushed her into a cupboard, and locked the door upon her. Then I opened the door of the dwelling-room. There was nobody there. But the door of a little side-room, which in peasants' houses is, as a rule, always open, was closed. On the table, however, I perceived my lord's hat and his riding-whip. I made no disturbance. The clothes of the herdsman's wife lay in a heap on the bench. I took off my clothes and put on hers carefully, one by one. I was just as you see me now. She stood up before me and turned herself round that I might have a better look at her. Then I went into the outer hut again, and picked the ladle from the floor which the maid had let fall in her terror. It was a mess of bacon dumplings that she had been engaged upon. I kneaded the dough for the dumplings. I made twelve beautiful little round ones out of it, boiled them, beat up a nice garlic sauce with them, and poured the whole lot of it into a varnished jug, first tasting to see that it was not over-salted. Then I tied up the jar in my kerchief, and set off with it towards the pasturage. But another idea also occurred to me. I concealed behind my apron my husband's riding-whip that was then reposing on the table, and took it away with me. The pasturage is pretty far from the hut. It was somewhat late when I arrived there. The herdsman was quite impatient, and had climbed up a lookout tree and when he saw my striped dress and bright red kerchief, he began to bawl out, "'Hillo! Come along, can't you? I'll give you what for. I'll teach you something, you cursed blockhead. What would you have done with my dinner? A pretty time, when they're already ringing vespers in the village. I suppose you've been carrying on with his honour again? Let me catch you at it, that's all, and I'll tickle your hide for you with my whip.' When I got up to him, and lifted the kerchief from my head, he stopped short with his mouth open. "'Well,' I never, if it isn't her ladyship. True, Pater, said I, I've cooked your dinner for you, and now you see I've brought it to you. Your wife cannot come. She's learning French from my husband. I've also brought with me my husband's whip. I found it on your table. You may flog with it whomever you like, either me or your wife. Here she stopped short. She evidently meant me to find out the rest of the story for myself. Poor woman, I murmured. I was sorry and embarrassed. She burst out laughing. Don't pity me, pray. I am perfectly happy. Drusad did not strike me with his whip. I am now mistress in the herdsman's hut. And she seemed quite proud of it all. Then she began to tell me of her new hero with real enthusiasm. He was what man was meant to be when first created, all strength and truth. There was nothing artificial, nothing false, nothing effeminate about him. When he comes home at night, he goes to the fireplace to smoke his pipe. Then he empties a can of buttermilk to the very dregs. Wine is only put upon the table on Sundays. Then he asks, Have you any good dumpling soup, sweetheart? Of course I have, and cured bacon and groat pottage as well. As soon as it is ready, we turn it out and sit down to it. We eat with tin spoons out of a large common dish. No invitation is needed there. The lady herself fetches the water from the spring. The master drinks one half of it, and offers the other half to his wife. You drink too, and after that they don't go in for much star-gazing, nor do they care a fig for the world and all its thousand troubles. They sleep with open doors, and the four sheep-dogs guard the house. At three o'clock in the morning Bessie gets up and goes to the stable to milk the cows. By dawn it must all be done. The little milking-stool is now her throne. She pours the fresh foaming milk into the pails, and takes them into the cellar with the help of the serving-maid. When the boy sounds his horn, the cows must be driven out. They must be pastured apart from the brood-cows. 
All this time the master is eating his breakfast, pepper bacon and green leeks, with good papa morgo, and then he follows his herds out into the pastures. The reason why he cracks his whip so loudly is because he knows that someone is standing there in the little door and looking after him. Then she has to skim the cream from the standing milk, churn the milk, and take the butter to market. Then she has to buckle to bread-baking. The maid is sent to heat the oven. Meanwhile she herself is kneading the dough. Then she shovels out the burning embers with the oven-scoop, and wipes down the inside of the oven with a wet kitchen clout. Then the loaves are shot in by means of the long baking shovel. First of all, however, are baked the fire-cakes, which my soul loves so much. Finally, the lock-up stone is smeared with clay and placed in front of the oven, and one must be ready to an instant to pull the stone from the mouth of the oven again and take out the loaves. Meanwhile, she has had time to prepare upon the hearth a pottage of millet and smoked bacon, and carries it very quickly, pot and all, to the pasturage, so that when the midday bell rings, the master may have his victuals ready laid on his outspread fur pelisse. After dinner, beneath the shadow of the big wild nut-tree, she may take a nap with an apron thrown over her face. On returning home, she gets out her bruised flax and heckles it, so that when the husband returns home he finds wife and family sitting by the distaff and singing together the spinning songs of the country folk, till the pigs come running home with a great grunting and demand their slush. Oh, such a life as that is pure enjoyment! I shook my head dubiously. It will bore you one day. Bore me? Do you recollect when I was in your lath hut, I painted this very life for you as my ideal? A hut of rushes and a bed of straw. You spoke to me of fame and glory. The lowing of kine, the tinkling of sheep-bells, the cracking of whips is my delight. It was so even then. Since that time I have learnt to know the great world, but it hasn't altered me. I am full of disgust with everything that is to be found in palaces. Those demi-men, those Sunday husbands, those refined and exquisitely polite she-sinners, those model sticklers for virtue who sin through the whole Ten Commandments day after day, and vie even with the ladies of the ballet, with this difference, however, that the ballet dancers are much more modest in private than these great ladies are in public. I am sick and weary of the whole lot of them. I would rather have a man who never washes his mouth after he has eaten garlic, than a man who returns home from an orgy and pretends he has been to a political conference. The famous Hamilton bed, which costs you a hundred ducats if you sleep in it for a single night, is wretchedness itself compared to the bed of fresh straw on which I sleep. Believe me when I tell you that I am perfectly happy. I'll believe anything you like, but there's one circumstance I cannot understand. How is it that nobody disturbs this sweet idol of yours? Is the one man who is so confoundedly nearly interested in your happiness, is that man still alive? Does Muki Bagatoy still exist anywhere in the wide world? I fancy so. Well, if he does, I'll only say that what flows through his veins is milk, not blood. Is he content to carry the horns of his hundred oxen? A rich and powerful landlord, a country magnate, and the master of your ideal peasant. A thousand lightnings, if I were only in his place. Bessie, with a sarcastic smile, folded her hands together above her knees. Well, come now, if you were in dear Muki's place, what would you do? I'll tell you. I wouldn't call Peter Durasa out, but one fine day I would put my democratic principles on the shelf, and collecting my haydukes and my rustics, I'd give chase to the herdsman, trounce him according to his deserts, and kick him out of my employment. 
I would get another herdsman. But as for my wife, I'd tie her to the pummel of my saddle, and drag her like that to my castle. That's what I would do, if I were the husband of Muki Bagatoy's wife. I had certainly got a little heated. It was only afterwards that I reflected, What's Hesaba to me? Why should I bother my head about Peter Durasa? Bessie, however, laughed most heartily. Ha, ha, ha! You'd have done that to me, would you? You'd have tied me to your horse's tail and whipped me home, eh? How sorry I am, then, that I did not choose you. What a fine thing it would have been if I could have boasted of bearing the impression of your blows on my body. Tell me now, have you ever struck any one who is unable to hit you back? At this I was fairly put to silence. But let that be. You could not be so good a Muki Bagatoy as Muki Bagatoy himself would have been if he could. He actually did try the very recipe which you now recommend. The very next day he sent his bailiff with a verbal message to Peter Durasa to pack himself off forthwith. But me the bailiff was to bring straight home. The bailiff gave himself airs, and would have used force, so I gave him a sound box on the ears, which he'll not forget in a hurry, whereupon Peter Durasa threw him out of the house. End of chapter 8, part 1